All right. Thank you all for coming to our panel. Who's actually listened to the Front End Happy Hour podcast? All right. We do have a podcast that uh, we sit around and have drinks and talk about Front End. So that's what we're going to do on stage for you. We've done one live event a couple weeks ago at NG Atlanta. So we're, this is our second one, so hopefully it's uh, good. And we actually have a guest today with us, which is, Alan is joining us. I don't know how many of you saw his talk today. So we'll be talking about the ever-changing web and how JavaScript has influenced it. So Alan, do you want to give us a brief introduction of who you are, what you do, and what your favorite happy hour beverage is? I'm Alan Werfbrock. So for the last 10 years or so, I mostly worked on the ECMAScript standard. I was the editor for ECMAScript 5, 5.1, and 2015 helped kill the... Uh, ES4 is another kind of uh, thing. I'm Thank you. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> so, and uh, I, I'm still a little bit involved, but I'm kind of uh, trying to back away from that. It's, the committee's become too big for me, I think. <laughs> uh, but, um, but right, actually right now, a big project I'm working on is trying to really do the history of JavaScript and get it all documented and written down and, and such. And favorite happy hour beverage? Well, I like uh, a good barrel-aged uh, uh, craft beer. Uh, I highly recommend Cascade Brewing in Portland. Uh, Ooh. Uh, <laughs> go to the Cascade Barrel House if, if you're there and you like sour beers. There's probably no place better in the country. Uh, right on. Those are bold words. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Before we get into it too much, let's get uh, introductions of the panelists. Brian, I want to start it off. Uh, yeah, my name is Brian Holt, and I really am sad about E4X. I really wish it was part of the JavaScript. No, I'm, I'm just kidding. It was a terrible skill. Uh, and yeah, I'm a cloud developer advocate for Microsoft. Jim? Jim Young, senior software engineer at Netflix. I'm Stacey London. I'm a front-end engineer at Atlassian working on Bitbucket Cloud. I'm Marge Julian, and I'm a senior software engineer at Netflix, too. And I'm Ryan Burgess. I'm a software engineering manager at Netflix. In each episode of the Front End Happy Hour podcast, we like to choose a keyword that if it's mentioned at all on well, today's panel, we will all take a drink and you guys can all hold us accountable. What did we decide today's word was? JavaScript. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, that of, course, smart. of course, getting <laughs> trolls already. <laughs> evolution. 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 All right. So any form of the word evolution, we will probably uh, have to take a drink. You just said evolution. Ah, cheers. Cheers. <laughs> All right, so I'm interested to know, how did everyone first get started with JavaScript? What was your first time looking at the language, writing it, just experiencing that great uh, JavaScript? My first experience was through the lens of jQuery. I first learned JavaScript in an internship, not in school, and I didn't quite understand that there was a distinction between jQuery and JavaScript, which I think is, happens a lot for beginner developers. So, you know, as you get more and more into it, you realize that there's a full language behind it, and it's not just nice little utility functions, but there's a lot of power to the language. So, Mine was uh, pre-jQuery, dating myself a bit, and it was, I was writing a lot of PHP, and then I saw this thing called JavaScript, and everyone was like, ah, oh, JavaScript's it's just toy language. Like it's great for minimal things. So PHP, that's the future, right? Power, there. real power. I mean, there's still a lot of websites running on PHP. Most of the world runs on PHP. Yeah, there you go. The, the language of PHP has evolved a lot. Cheers. 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 So, uh, I probably came into JavaScript different in a different way. Um, 
I was working at Microsoft at the time, and I just changed Woo. jobs and was sort of a staff engineering advisory position relating to dynamic languages. And I'd been on this job for a week, and my boss uh, says, you know anything about JavaScript? I said, mm, no, it's, it's this weird language on the web, right? And he said, well, here, I got this email from one of our guys in India, and there's, like, he's on a standards committee, and he's all talking. He wants to know whether if it's okay that the things they're doing in the standards committee is okay for us. And he goes down, she, actually, she was goes down the list of, you know, they're talking about multi-methods and just, you know, and uh, static type system and a bunch of stuff like that. Does, does any of that make sense to you? And I said, well, I don't know. I'll look into it. <laughs> and so that was how I got Actually, that was kind of the beginning of the the uh, battle against ECMAScript 4. Crusades. I think that's what that's called. My introduction to JavaScript, I used to have an old blog, which I'm not going to tell you the URL, because I think it's still live. It's WordPress. It's like one is wont to do. I wrote a blog post about how I spent hours and hours debugging a bug with JavaScript the first time I ever wrote it. I was a PHP developer in a company in Utah. And I found out after hours of debugging that in JavaScript you can't call a function uh, the same name as a variable inside of the function. Now, I was a great programmer. I think it was a great practice, and I think it's a travesty that we can't do that. But, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was my first exposure to it. And then I accidentally became a front-end developer, and somehow I'm here. <laughs> Well, and I think, like Jem, I'll date myself a bit in the sense that I started way before jQuery, but I looked at it from the lens of Flash. I was doing a ton of Flash, which, you know, Flash doesn't really... Shout out to yeah, ActionScript. Yeah. Uh, some ActionScript, AS1, AS2, AS3. But what I used JavaScript for was to bridge the Flash implementation to the browser. If you had to store, uh, like, a cookie or, or something that you actually wanted to store in the browser, that's how you could do it. And then slowly Flash started to become less and less of a thing that I was doing and JavaScript became more important. And that's right around the time jQuery kind of took over. Stacy. Yeah, I think I have a sort of similar story, like early, but pre-jQuery for sure. And then first job out of school, um, I worked with like an ECMAScript variant, uh, Lotus Script, which is like similar, but not quite. And it was sort of a weird... Uh, stack of stuff to be working in that with, but then from there it just went on from uh, regular JavaScript, then jQuery, and then all the other variants on top of that. So um, many, many stacks later, I'm still, I'm still here doing it. And more frameworks to go. The evolution continues. <laughs> Cheers. 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 So I'm interested in the future of JavaScript. What does that look like? Are we going to need transpilers? Are we going to always be relying on Babel or any of the other trans transpilers out there? Will browsers just support JavaScript, or are we always going to be leaning on transpilers? I think uh, I think the answer to that question is, is transpilers, and particularly Babel, I think is here to stay. I, I have like a really big soft spot for Babel. I think it's one of the most important projects out there. There's a reason why they changed the name from 6 to 5, which is what Babel was originally called back when some punk uh, Australian kid wrote it. <laughs> just kidding, I'm, I'm, Sebastian's a cool guy. It was called 6 to 5. It was designed to transpile uh, ES6 to ES5, ES2015 to ES5. And they changed it to Babel because they wanted it to be a platform for the future. Previously, in the world of JavaScript, the web developers didn't have as much say in like the future of the evolution, cheers, 
Uh, <laughs> that was less intentional, in case you didn't know. They had less input into what was happening because it was just kind of the browser vendors kind of, and those in their ivory towers lobbing things over the fence saying like, here, try this, see if it works for you. And then when it landed in the browser, you could give it a shot. The cool thing about Babel is we get to try things like decorators, which are still not even set in how we're going to do those today, and et cetera, et cetera. I, I don't know why I picked the most <laughs> controversial one, but um, we get to try those today, see if we like them, um, mess around with them, and then we can give feedback to them so that, that when it actually lands in the spec, that it, it, it works for us, right? And so that's why I think transpilers are here to stay and why that's a good thing. So, uh, so I kind of think what we're seeing is a fork or a di divergence here that between the, I'll call it the enterprise computing side of the world, although I suspect many of you would not want to be characterized as enterprise developers. Microsoft is definitely not enterprise. <laughs> but but sort of the, the more process-oriented development side of the world that wants to have a repeatable development process uh, and a tool chain that is, is applied to the programs before they're de deployed, and uh, Babel fits right, in, right into that. The, the other side of it is more of the, the live, immediate at response, uh, uh, direct programming of the browser, which um, I, you know, I have, uh, I'm a middle small talk guy, so, you know, I really like that style of, of, of programming and, and such, but it's, it's, it's always been at tension with the, the, the kind of, the, the formalized processes that larger software development organizations use. And so that's where, so I, I think they've discovered that, uh, the enterprise size that that Babel really fits into that sort of cool tool chain. So I think it's going to be stay around or things like it for that purpose. Yeah, I think especially too is like even when there is something new to JavaScript that's coming out, it takes time for the browsers to adopt it. And you know, if if you're wanting to start using the latest and greatest, Babel really fills in that. Yeah, but but I don't. I mean. I, you know, well, this goes back to my previous talk. I think we need to get over this. I got to use the latest, new, newest thing. I mean, re really. I mean, we're, we're developers. We love to use the latest and greatest. Yeah. Does, does, does your next things. app, you know, really depend upon, uh, you know, a, a, a little feature that hasn't been there? You've been unable to now. I mean, it will come along. So if that was all it was, you know, I, I'm not so sure. Um, I, I really think it, it, part of it goes back to. Um, Something Doug Crockford used to say is, talk about is the difference between JavaScript and everything else is that for more traditional programming languages, the developer chooses the deployment implementation of the language is going to use. You choose which C or C++ compiler, you're going to compile your code and you ship that. While for JavaScript, it's the end user who chooses, by choosing a browser, the implementation it is. Well, when you have an ahead of time tool chain generating code for a, a base standardized version of, of the browser, you're, you're back more to the, that developer is in control of, of the environment where the code is ultimately going to run. And so I think that's part of the attraction of it. That's a fair point, actually. I, I'm pretty contrary. I, I agree with you, Alan, that we should slow down. Actually, 
I don't like the way JavaScript's going right now. I, I looked at the latest TC39 meeting to see what was getting in there, and we're just shoving a lot of things into a language that, on top of everything, is backwards compatible. So it needs to work with websites built in 2000, which I think will come and get us uh -huh. in the long run. We just have like dead features that we have swore because you know my aunt Sally has a website running and she doesn't yeah. want it to break. I like it's more of a philosophical argument for me. It's the best or the most impactful decisions I've ever made in my life have been made with constraints. So it's like, where do I go to school? Well, I don't have an unlimited choice. I have like finite resources that I can allocate. JavaScript is growing so that's like slowly eating other parts of computing, but I don't think that makes for good programming. I think we work best when we have constraints on the system and not let JavaScript do whatever it wants. Like, well, 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 so I agree with you, and particularly your observation about the latest things in JavaScript that, or the process. It's you, you know, uh, ECMAScript six two thousand fifteen uh, was really designed over six years by a core team of about eight people, and the uh, typical meeting we'd have maybe had. 15 people. So you had this core of eight people and another seven or eight who'd kind of flowed in or out and stuff, but you know, they weren't really part of the core. This last meeting was over 60 people in attendance. And it, it's like JavaScript has become so important that everybody wants to be involved in the standards process. And if you're you know, and you're working for some random big company, and, and your boss says, well, why don't you start going to these meetings? Or even you say, I, I'd like to do this, let's send me to these meetings. You go there, how do you measure, measure your success? Well, I got a new feature in the, in the, in the language. You know, is, is, does somebody really need that feature? Well, it's useful for some things and stuff, but I got it in. I got it through the process and stuff. And there's, with that big group that we have today, as we're wrapping eight people doing it, um, we spend a, we worried a lot about what we call the complexity budget. That, that in building the language, there's only so much complexity you can have in the language. And as time goes on, you use up that budget. And so every decision you make today to add some little feature is using up complexity budget that downstream five years, 10 years from now, you might want to use for something else. And if you forget about the complexity budget model, you just start throwing stuff in, and that's bad. No, that's a very good point. I think it also leads to, um, like we're talking about this committee, which is TC39. Mm -hmm. How would you explain that, Alan? Like, I think that's more a question for you, is explaining what TC39 is, and what, what does the process look like for adding a new feature into JavaScript? Okay. So first of all, the way standards work, historically standards are a very kind of bureaucratic and actually sort of government-focused process. Uh, part of what standards do is allow competitive companies to get together and legally collude to do things. <laughs> I mean, literally, I mean, you can Legal get, collusion, cool, I'm into that. Yeah, you can get together and decide to do things the same way, which if it wasn't done in a standard situation and you were very large competitive companies would be considered to be anti-competitive, eventually antitrust. And so the standards organizations provide a framework for that to happen for things that you actually do need to standardize. And so there, um, there are various bodies in the world that do this. In the U.S., there's... ANSI, American National Standards Institute, uh, 
Worldwide, it flows up to something that's called ISO, International Standards Organization, and, and ECMA, which you hear, is, um, is a European-based standards group that operates worldwide, and it happens to be the group under which JavaScript was standardized, and, and it, it's there because um, ECMA has always had the reputation as being sort of a low bureaucracy, low overhead, the, you know, let the technical people do whatever they needed to do sort of organization, and that's partly how it got selected for JavaScript. So, so TC stands for Technical Committee, TC, so which is a group within a standards organization that works in a particular technology area. So TC39 is the group that works on JavaScript. And so it's the JavaScript Committee, its members are official, officially companies, not not people. So you companies pay to be members of it. And um, what happens inside the committee in terms of creating a standard is pretty much up to the members inside the committee, but it largely operates on a consensus basis. Everybody kind of needs to decide. Uh, up through ES6, like I said, it was a relatively small group of people involved. And there was a, a single editor who did most of the actual technical work of creating the standards and stuff. That was me. And we did a, and it had been a long time since the major updates. So we did a whole lot of stuff and it took a, a number of years to get it done. At the end of that, we said, well, this has become so big and complex. We need, we know there are bugs. We need frequent releases. Uh, decided to do a release every year, and we saw that a lot more people coming involved, so we tried to invent a process for it, and this is what's called the stage process. And so a proposal comes in and goes through four stages. Um, the first stage we call stage zero is basically coming along and saying, maybe we should work on something like X. And you talk about it for a while, and and uh, and you know if there's general agreement, general consensus that this is an interesting area to investigate, it goes to stage one. Stage one is let's explore this space seriously. Let's let's explore alternative solutions, alternative ways to provide this functionality. We um, maybe do some prototype implementations, but develop a sense of kind of how we want to approach it. And at the end of that, again, it goes, the champions, the people who are working on it, it's not the whole, there's a small group of people who works on each of these proposals, they go back to the whole committee and say, okay, here's the, sh the shape of solution that we think would be appropriate, that we think this makes sense to do something with this, and the solution looks approximately like what we prototyped here. And if, again, if there's agreement, it goes to stage two, Stage two is really working out the details, starting to write specification language, formal specification language to describe it, kind of working the bugs out of the design. Uh, at the end of that, if that's complete, it goes to stage three. At the beginning of stage three, there's a fairly complete draft or proposed specification. The idea with stage three is that people will actually go out and implement it and try it in the wild. So uh, maybe browsers will implement it behind a switch. Uh, maybe Babel they should, should implement it. Or the transpilers will come Yeah, transpilers there. come in. And they might come in earlier, too, in experiments. But it's but really trying it out. 
And if, once that process is done and everybody is happy with the results, um, the committee says, okay, this is, we think this is good. We think this is going to go, we want this to go into the next edition of the standard. At that point, it's called stage four. Essentially means done. And, and when it's at stage four, well, it's done. It, it, it may be in a queue since the standard is only officially released. There are drafts all the time, but the, the only once a year is there an official new release of the standard. And so if something's at stage four, should be showing up in the next release. Very nice. And that's when we're happy when we get the new features to use. <laughs> yeah, so definitely a long process to go through. And I, I mean, we've seen features that go on for a while that we're you know, itching to use. And so it is good that it's going through those standards, like Jem said, of just you know, being a little more aware and, and making sure that we're not shipping every new feature that needs to be. Yeah, well, yeah, and that, that's a real problem. Yeah. I mean, one of the things, you know, one of the things, sort of new people in the committee, a real typical thing is people come in and say, well, can we take X or Y or Z out? Yeah. And, and we, you know, and everybody jumps on and says, no, <laughs> no, you can't take it out. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, the, the, the web page your gra grandmother wrote in 1996 is He's still right, out there yeah. using JS, and you don't want to break your grandmother's web page, do you? It's, uh, it's, uh, yeah. you, you don't know. Don't break the web, right? Don't break the web. Don't break the web. But like, yeah, don't break, don't break the web. You can't do it. But, and say, okay, I get that. We aren't going to do that. But each of the, you got to look at each of these new things you add is something that 15 years down the road, somebody else may be coming along and saying, well, that was really a dumb feature. Nobody really uses it. Can't we remove that? <laughs> so, uh, the with keyword? I was going to say, with, with is coming back. I want with to come back. Well, like in it. Python, that would be great. Let's do it. So uh, that's an interesting comment, because even comparing it to Python, what are some challenges JavaScript has, like in your opinions, against other languages? Whether it be, yeah, specific to language or adoption, like what are, what are some things that you find ch that are challenging for JavaScript? I, I'd like to hear Stacey's answer on this, because she does a lot of uh, web component things that I know have people have been pushing for years, and it just hasn't seen any adoption. So I wonder if making it part of like the HTML spec, HTML6 or whatever the next spec, or JavaScript would be beneficial. Yeah, I mean, I guess there are some things that you just wish weren't, we didn't need JavaScript for. Like mm -hmm. things that really should just be part of HTML and CSS and, and baked into the, the other um, things in the stack of the things that do those things really well, but we've had to use JavaScript as like a workaround. Um, and maybe now we're using it as a default, but it's not really the best thing for what you're trying to do. Um, like layouts or something like that's that CSS is way better at that browsers are way more optimized for that and so there's I think that's a challenge where um, you know you see people coming out of programs and like I'm a JavaScript engineer and you're like wait aren't you a web developer like you touch those other things too so I think that's a challenge with the language and maybe just the um, our, our profession as a whole so you know why uh, JavaScript is standardized in ECMO rather than the W3C I, I would be know. fascinated to know. Hmm? I would be fascinated to know. It's because TBL, back in the time, in 1995, 1996, didn't think that the web should have a procedural programming language. He thought that everything should be declarative. Right. What, <laughs> what I really want to know is... They might have been right. Judge the jury's still out. I mean, he might, he might have been. I mean, it's... Uh, <laughs> I want to know, so you're on TC39, 
Who's on TC40? I, I, there is a TC40, or at least there was a TC40. I'd have to look up what it was. But, uh, Hashtag, bring it back. Next yeah. level TC39. Yeah, you, you should know, just start it, it. It could be something like, you know, phase encoding for magnetic disks or something like that. You know, it, it's really the standards organizations cover just a huge range of technologies. It's... We, we were talking earlier about uh, functional quantum computing, mm -hmm. and uh, Alan gave the best answer I've ever heard. I asked him, like, what do you think about quantum computing? He's like, honestly, I don't know much about it. So, And, like, you have to respect that. You don't hear that very often. So I'm like, I actually don't know that much. People's, well, well, well see, the other half of what I said was, and I decided a long time ago, <laughs> that I probably didn't need to know for the duration of my life, so I'm, I'm, not, I'm not too worried about it. It's... Uh, so all of us uh, work on UIs and, and you know fairly large companies. How has JavaScript actually empowered you to make more performant, uh, better user experiences that you weren't able to do maybe in the past or on older versions of JavaScript without something like jQuery or even just older versions of JavaScript? I actually want to just take, ish, not issue, but with the word better, I guess, only be, right. the, I think the word better can be described in multiple ways and we see it in our UIs all the time. Like what does better mean? I think from a software engineering side, it can be more organized, it can be more performant, but from a UI side, it can also be more interactive. And a lot of times when we make our UIs more interactive and they, you know, they've got, you know, shiny bobbles here and there and they work really well and they've got these beautiful visualizations, they're not super performant. Um, and I feel like sometimes we do have to actively work against that in order, we, we get a lot of benefits from JavaScript, but also we don't always have a ton of discipline with it either. And so we have to kind of work against that a little bit in order to make sure that even though RUIs are beautiful, they will load for lots of people on different devices and different browsers. And so I just want to, you know, elaborate on the word better. I like bit. that. Thank you, Mars. <laughs> well, I, I totally agree with that, actually, in the sense that sometimes I think it's almost hard because we should be simplifying our UIs. We have all these great tools available to us. Should we use them all? Probably not. Um, and you're, you're almost thinking of that more, everyone should be able to use it. And if you pack it full of all the latest and greatest, not everyone can especially for performance. Well, I think we have to make compromises and going back to the transpilers conversation, it, we use other tools to make the code that we write more performant but still work really well and work across different browsers. So we've kind of evolved, evolved? Cheers. 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 <laughs> the community has evolved to a place where we have to write tools to solve all of these problems for us because we have so many options that we, or so many things we can do with our UIs now, but we have other concerns as well, and we have to build the tools to allow us to do that as as we go. I, I don't know if JavaScript's gotten better. Like ES 2015, landmark moment, we got better then. But overall, I don't know if JavaScript's necessarily got better. It's just that we have better tooling around how to use JavaScript, like the Chrome developer tools or Firefox developer tools. Um, made us better engineers because we can now debug instead of using console statements like we did in the beginning. Just yeah. console log everything. Blessed oh. be the console log. Oh, the ability to stop on a breakpoint and, and like see all the oh, variables that, that are in that, that scope. That was groundbreaking. Oh, like, yeah. yeah. People take that for granted. Just console everything just like you do in other programming languages. But the tooling's gotten better and most of the things that people say like, oh, JavaScript's great because um, Redux or React or Vue or Angular, all these frameworks, that's not necessarily... Like the evolution of JavaScript is just we've gotten better writing code and the tools have gotten better. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Cheers. Accidental. Keeping us honest.
Well, it's kind of seems that language has gotten enough better that it's possible to build those sorts of frameworks and, and, and the implementations, right, and, and the performance and, and the debuggers because um, if you can't debug the stuff, you can't build it. So, so that's all a part of it. Um, so I, I kind of had a question along the lines you guys were talking about is can you think of a case where there was something that people commonly needed to do in web apps that you couldn't do declaratively in HTML and CSS that people did in, instead in JavaScript, maybe using jQuery or, or something, which then as HTML and CSS improved, they reverted back to doing it declaratively and moved away from doing it procedurally. I mean, I, I would expect, you would hope that would be the way that things move forward. <laughs> yeah, uh, I think I saw some like really horrible C uh, jQuery of like things that they could have used like the not selector for. Like Estelle just gave a great talk. Shout out Estelle. Uh, she, she gave an awesome talk about CSS selectors, about some amazing things you can do with like sibling selectors with like multiple, si hey Estelle, we're talking about you. You gave a fantastic talk about like uh, CSS selectors and about the horrible things that jQuery developers used to do to achieve the same things that we can do with CSS selectors, I think that in particular is something that's greatly improved, especially with CSS level three. Yeah, and so there's where you might have used JavaScript because we couldn't do it necessarily, right. and now exactly. we're able to actually and go like, back. Having to maintain that legacy code still gives me a little bit of night terrors, for being mm -hmm. honest. When was the last time you looked at like a old legacy jQuery build? I've been gone from Netflix like six months. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So, so, and, and so do you see people actually making that transition where they say, oh, I, I don't need to use JavaScript here anymore, I can now use the declarative approach? Yeah, I think so. I don't think it always happens like really quickly. I think in, in, in companies when you're building something, you kind of forget about it. Uh, once it's done, you mm -hmm. kind of move on and you may touch it later. And sometimes you don't necessarily have time to refactor. And at that point, that's when you should be thinking about it as like, oh, wait, I could just leverage something like CSS or HTML here and, and taking the time to do that. That doesn't always happen. It, I think it's, it's on us to call each other and say, hey, like, let's take the time to do that um, because I think it is important. I think most things we take for granted as the web has evolved, we're much better. We build better apps. Cheers. We're actually, man, I'm Cheers. on a roll today. They're actually um, from W3C and HTML spec. Like the web APIs are the things we actually take advantage of most. Like service workers is uh, like HTML spec. I don't know. Query selector, Query which selector. is amazing because we had to use Java or we had to use jQuery before to do that. And we can just do that now with oh, the API. Uh, fetch, um, web Bluetooth. I can go on and on. Like those are all actually HTML standards, not JavaScript. So I think people misuse the term like JavaScript is evolving, where it's the web that's evolving, and JavaScript's part of that. When you, yeah, I was gonna say, Jeff, uh, like, that was like yeah. three evolves. <laughs> that was a double. Uh, but when you're using a web API at that level, you're still doing JavaScript programming. So there's a difference between using a W3C defined API for JavaScript and using the declarative expression of equivalent functionality. Totally. Right, and... Uh, I think Fetch is actually a really great example of that because it, it used promises which came out of TC39, but it was expressing some DOM concern, right? And so it was, it was, that's a great melding of the two different uh, standards body, I suppose. Well, as a matter of fact, the reason promises were in ECMAScript 2015 is, was because if they weren't, 
then the W3C was going to define promises as part of the web platform. Oh, God, no. <laughs> yeah, like, there was literally, I mean, there's a bit of a hostage situation there. And, uh, <laughs> Uh, kind of forced, that. Oh, forced yeah. us into moving faster than maybe than we would have. We, you know, we might have thought another year or two about some of the edge issues and stuff, which, in the long run, maybe would have been good. But on the, on the other hand, the platform I really did did need it. Uh, so, uh, can I ask how how's promise cancellation coming along? Yeah, so I, any day now. Or is we've we've been waiting for that one for a long time. How about know. tail call recursion? Let's go there. <laughs> it, <laughs> okay. Let's leave poor Al. We're bringing up like, all the sore points right now. So, so, so I have something for all you front end guys. Yeah. Uh, it's or at least something I hope you think about sometimes. Um, something I did a Twitter rant a couple weeks ago. So follow him on Twitter, by the way. It's 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 worth a follow. It's yeah. pretty it's pretty yeah. entertaining. So so one one of the things I care about tends to be people my age tend to care about for some reason I don't know why, but is the long-term viability of what we create on the web. Uh, and particularly, you know, I, I, I don't really care about your, your app you build that's going to be used for six months and then replaced by another app. But I care if I sit down or, or a friend of mine sits down and they spend five years building a book-length work that's a dynamic document. It's not just random text. Uh, so a rich, a, a rich document that's web-based. Uh, and they would hope that a hundred years from now, you know, the odds are against them, but they would hope that they've done something significant enough that a hundred years from now, people are working, looking at that. So how do we build the web going forward? to enable that sort of long-term durability of, of documents where the web is our primary repository of human information when, you, you know, we can't be changing the programming language every... Uh, uh, okay, I, I, I see where you're headed there. In some ways, I think to the user experience, it doesn't always necessarily change. So we sometimes change frameworks, we sometimes re-architect, clean up code, and to the user, that eh, doesn't really change much, uh, typically. And so I think... You'd hope, it, right? I, I, no, I think to Alan's point, I think it, it could, right? Like, let's it, say tomorrow that Wikipedia stops being maintained, right? I would hope 100 years from now that that wealth of knowledge is still accessible even if we change the browser APIs 10 dozen more times. But I think the idea is that the web still is there and it's like, it it's just function. It's evolving. We would just have like the way, way, way back machine. You asked. 100 years from now. Okay, very, very Because you have to, these are things that are really popular, arguably will be maintained by somebody. Yep. But there's a huge set of things that are not popular enough for people to actually spend money to to maintain them and, and update, but still have long-term value, right? Yeah. Uh, in fact, it's hard to identify at this point, looking forward, which things are actually the valuable things. So the safe thing is to preserve as much as possible. I mean, that's what libraries have always done and, and such. And so, you know, again, how do we... 
Is it, do you have to fall back on the virtual machines? Can we really depend upon, you, you know, 100 years or 200 years worth of different virtual machines being available to run different generations of this technology? Um, or, or, or I'm wondering if maybe there we need to need have a split in the, the web, in, in the browser platform between things that are appropriate to do into web documents that you expect to have a long life versus relatively transient or short-term web applications that are more like uh, traditional applications and have we're going to have a limited lifetime. And that's, that's one possibility. I don't know if that's the answer. but uh, So what, what I'm hearing is that every browser should have quirks mode all the time. No, uh, you like know, Stacey said, way back You can, you can mode, think it's quirks like, mode by like the look of horror in their face that. right now. <laughs> That, that was so painful. Like, we should never go back to that time. Can you fix, oh, no. make sure that never happens, Brian? Oh, quirks mode. <laughs> Fucking Microsoft. <laughs> <laughs> so we actually are pretty much out of time, but I want to thank Alan for joining us. Thank you so much for Thanks, joining sir. us. It's, it's been know. very great. Um, thank you all for listening to us. Yeah, That's thank you for useful. all watching us get drunk. No, yeah. <laughs> Alan, where can people get in touch with you? Uh, well, you can follow me on Twitter at AWBJS. Um, it's a weird looking like blue face, right? Yeah, you got the blue face there. <laughs> yeah, just, just be aware of that. Uh, and uh, you can, um, uh, worstrock.com slash Ellen, uh, my very occasionally updated blog, but I also have various interesting documents and stuff there that's worth looking at. That's W-I-R-F like Fred, S like Sam, hyphen like dash, <laughs> B like boy, R-O-C-K, slash Alan. Um, <laughs> although, although my wife would be quite happy if you left off the dash Alan and then you could learn about how to really do a design things with objects, but that's a different story. Cool. Um, so, and, or you can email me at alan at worstrock.com. Right on. Well, thank you all for listening. Uh, if you're interested in hearing more of our episodes, frontendhappyhour.com. You can follow us on Twitter at frontendhh. And uh, any last words before we take off? Evolution. 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 Cheers. Revolution. Revolution. <laughs> that counts. That counts. Drink again. <laughs> <laughs>